Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, a semi-friendly discussion between two blokes on watches, cars, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Tommy and Sanjeev. Hey now, and welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, episode 15, Hope Springs Eternal. Me, Sanj, and Tommy here. All right, Sanj. I think... Um... I think the focus of this episode, you know what, Sanch, I guess, you know, this whole episode is to talk to those critics that always say we're very negative and sort of look on to watches and things we don't like. So I think this episode is about hope, you know, springs eternal, you know, flowers, all that, all that BS, you know, everything's going to be rosy. So this episode is really the the things from Baselworld and recently that, you know, we do like that, that I think uh, are interesting and kind of compelling. So you're saying last episode was like April showers, crap weather, well, just you know, Debbie I, Downer. And then it, this it, episode is going to be May flowers where everything's blooming, birds are chirping, that whole. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm saying the flowers are popping through manure. I, it's not a hundred percent, but there are flowers it's... showing up. It's rich with nutrients, all right? It's Let's rich just... with nutrients. Because I what did you, I mean, is it fair to say that we were kind of disappointed with Basel World this year? Is that is that fair? Yeah, you know what? It is fair. I think partially because of the absence of the Swash group. Um it was okay. I mean, there was nothing exciting compared to let's say the previous Basel. You are a Swatch fanboy. Okay. Well, I mean, we are big Omega fanboys. Let's just true. say. It's true. It's true. But, you know, this episode is all about looking forward and uh, looking at the bright things of life. And yeah, let's see how this episode goes. Maybe it'll still be I could be the Debbie Downer of the two. Um, Uh, uh, My money is that you will be the Debbie Downer of the two. Well, without further ado, let's begin. All right, Deborah. So (laughs) (laughs) the first watch that I I think we neglected the men that actually was quite decent and pretty exciting uh, was a release from Seiko, the SNR 029J, uh, the Seiko Prospects LX, uh, the luxury Prospects diver. So uh, Seiko basically released uh, a three-watch lineup for Prospects, air, sea, and land. Um, And this was the diver version. So, you know, right off the bat, any Prospects luxury Seiko diver is going to be compared to obviously the Marine Master line, the Marine Master 300, you know, whatnot. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that this Prospects LX, which looks very much like a Marine Master, I've got to point that out, um, is nearly double the price of a Marine Master. It's selling for 6,100 euros. Um, like I mentioned, this is one of three. These are actually titanium watches. Um, so, even with a watch this big, and it's pretty thick, okay, it's 15.7 millimeters thick, which is, you know, pretty big. Um, being made out of titanium, at least you won't feel the weight if it was made out of steel. Um, interesting things, you know, obviously for the price they're charging, you know, you've got to have some of that Grand Seiko pizzazz and, you know, stardust. So they threw in some Zerasu polishing. They threw in the spring drive uh, 5R65 caliber. Um, I, I suspect that's, um, you know, that's where the price comes from, but yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think, Sanj? What are you looking at it? What's, what's your first impression? So my first impression is the chunkiness of the watch. It looks like 
if you were to render a Seiko in Minecraft, this is yeah. what you'll get. It is so chunky. Um, I don't know if you ever seen the game Minecraft or ever played it. I've seen it, but not played it. But you know, it's very blocky. This one yeah. reminds me of that. Like very blocky. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I could see the blockiness. Um, you know, I think it definitely looks like a Seiko diver. Like the 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 hands, the the applied indices, they all scream Seiko. And you have that, um, I guess, Grand Seiko or Spring Drive, the the meter to show how much charge is left in the in the. Uh, um, in, in the, the movement, movement? Yeah, yeah, that's a typical Seiko, or well, typical Grand Seico. Grand Seiko per Spring se. drive. Yeah. Movement. So you you know there there are some cues here that this is not your typical Seiko diver, but I do agree. I do agree. It's it's a bit chunky. I do agree that you know for the price, you know I you, you know me. I'm a big Marine Master 300 fan. You know, for me, I you know I think in in the in the world of of dive watches and tool watches between a Rolex Submariner and a Marine Master 300, if you buy a Marine Master 300, you are buying a dive watch that is more faithful to the original Rolex Submariner than the Rolex Submariner that's out today. Is that fair to say? The Rolex Submariner out today is a luxury watch. The Marine Master 300 today is a built tool watch. Correct. I mean, it's, it's like, for example, I mean, these watches in these price ranges, don't get me wrong, they're very, very capable watches, but it's like buying a fully loaded Range Rover, a Range Rover that's fully capable in the off-road terrain, but you never want to take it to that environment. That's a very good, that's a very good apt comparison, right? Because what, what you, if you're going to get a two watch, you want the Land Rover equivalent. You want something that you can actually beat up and take off road, not necessarily right. the Range Rover. Right. And you know, the Range Rover is just as capable. Well, I mean, I'm not entirely capable, but it's an extremely capable off-road vehicle. And they, you know, when, you know, I come from the engineering development world. You know, these engineers will take it to the extremes. But as a consumer, you wouldn't want, want to because you, you paid, you know, a good chunk of money to buy this vehicle. Similar thing, you know, these watches are extremely capable. I mean, they go out to, what, 300 meters dive, diving capability, titanium finish uh, material, you know, and, and the spring drive movement is awesome. You know, yeah, I think spring drive is fantastic. Are spring drive fans, I yeah, think that's awesome. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, for the price, for the design, for the feel of this watch, I would go for the Marine Master Three Hundred, the SPDX. You know, yeah. So it, this that's is the one, price. The one thing though is for sixty one hundred. It's what sixty one hundred bucks or sixty one euros. So yeah, around six thousand plus dollars, right? Um, it's not that bad when you can see the construction and the specs of the watch. It's actually a good deal. I mean, it's a no, straight track movement. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, I mean, that's why it's on this list, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's a very compelling offering. I think, I think it, the design cues and the feel of it are great. Very smart move to go to titanium because with a watch that's over 15 millimeters thick, that much steel on your wrist, you know, you're gonna need a you're gonna need a sling right, to walk around. <laughs> yeah, but... you're gonna need a crane to. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think they made all the right decisions. But from a practical perspective, if you and I walk to a Seiko, you know, AD tomorrow, I would go for the Marine Master 300 because I would too. You get the same feeling. Fine, it's not spring drive. Fine, you don't get the Zarutsu polishing. Fine, you know, it, it's it's not titanium, but. 
you're getting the feel for the watch and you're getting a watch that for half the price that you'll actually put some punishment onto. So Exactly. The other thing I noticed is, you know, according to uh, the Fratello magazine that, you know, posted, it's only a hundred euro under the price of the Grand Seiko Sport. Uh, right. SBGA229. That is what gets me because Grand Seiko is, you know, but who the next cares? level. What, what, no, I, I haven't, I'm not why? saying. That. Why is it the next level? That's a spring drive. This is a spring drive. That yeah. has the Urutsu polishing. This has the Urutsu polishing. You're getting a Grand Seiko. That's what this is all about. Yeah, but that's the problem in today's you know world when it comes to branding, right? You know, you show off a Grand Seiko, they'll be like, oh, okay, okay, not bad, not bad. But then you, if you show them uh, the Seiko, they will not understand that this is a fully capable watch. You I don't. Know, know. I, I think. I think in theory, I agree with you. But frankly, I don't even know if enough people realize Grand Seiko and Seiko are two different companies right now. That that would even care. Is it you now? Know what I mean? Is it now? What? <laughs> do you think? Do you think someone's gonna be like, "Oh, that's a Grand Seiko," versus that's a Seiko? Yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, yeah. if the the brand awareness just isn't there yet. It's like. Rolex and Tudor, people get the difference. I, I think they understand now. But you know what I mean? Like, it's the difference between Seiko and Grand Seiko. I'm that is sure. true. I'm not sure, you know? But, the uh, other thing I'm not a big fan of uh, is the crown. Uh, it's huge. Yeah, it, it is big. Actually, it's I didn't exposed as well. mentioned it. Yeah, that's... Uh, I don't I didn't know. notice until you just mentioned it. I mean, it's in the traditional 4 o'clock Seiko position. Which is great. I mean, that bit I, I, I dig. Consistent. Yeah, consistent, but yeah, it is big, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah, it's, it's massive. Very big. Like, wow. I mean, an astronaut can like adjust the watch with full gloves and gear. <laughs> Reaching down from the ISS. Yeah. So that's yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, is this something to you know chew on? All right. Just something to chew on. What do you got for uh, for me to chew on? All right. So the one I'm going to cover is a reissue of a classic. Oh, of a classic watch that is well known to watch fans out there. So we're going to be talking about the Breitling Navitimer. Oh, okay. And this one is specific uh, to a reissue of the 1959 edition. Okay. So the Navitimer has been in the watch world for a very long time. And the one cool thing about the Sonava timer is it's almost basically an exact replica of the original 1959 version. Oh, okay. um, there's slight differences to, you know, to keep up at modern times. Um, one of the key ones is they updated the, the loom from radium to super luminova. Okay. And now it's water resistance to 30 millimeters, 30 meters, not 30 millimeters. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the cool thing is, um, I've never heard of this watch. And when I looked at it the first time, I thought this is the best looking Brightening Navitimer I've seen. Yeah. I love the color combination. So just to give the listeners out there. The, so the Navitimer, as you know, is at one point was used as a proper tool watch. You know, it had a slide, has a slide rule and, you know, pilots used it for several calculations. Speed, fuel. Speed, fuel, right. Um, yeah. So the outer slide rule is uh, in white with uh, black markings. And then the in, inside, the rest of the dial is in black with white markings. So it's kind of like a, you have to correct me, it's a reverse panda style. Well, I mean, 
first of all, no, because there's no two subdials. Like the, the that's the panda's eyes. What, what, what are the eyes here? Uh, I, I said it's like it's like it's not a proper panda. I know it's a monochromatic. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna let you get away with it. Pandas have eyes. They have two eyes. That doesn't make sense. That's great. Anyways, um, thanks for the biology, uh, zoology uh, discussion. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. Um, but anyways, the numerals, um, there's three registers, like the typical traditional yeah, yeah. timer at the 3, 6, and 9 o'clock, and numerals uh, that fill in the rest of the uh, wash face, per se. Um, the one thing... This is one thing I was mildly impressed. Um, so it's a limited edition. How uh, many pieces? Uh, that's a good question. I believe it's only 1959 pieces. Yeah, that's right. 1959. Yeah. So, you know, not that many pieces out there in the market. It is expensive, you know, in the grand scheme of things. It's about 8,000 euro. Yeah. But it's relatively reasonable. I can see this being, you know... Uh, a definite collector watch. Um, the one I'm sure th- they've sold everything. Oh, they sold it probably in the first hour. Um, the the other cool thing is they they stayed true to the original design of the watch. You know, they didn't really put an automatic movement; it's still manually wound. So, and the power reserve is eight seventy hours. So, even though it's manually wound, it'll last for a few days. Yeah, and it's chronometer certified, so it's pretty accurate. I I think you know, you're a Breitling Navitimer fan. Is that is that fair to say? It's a hit or miss for me. Truly okay. a hit if or it, miss. If you're gonna buy a Breitling, would it be a Navitimer? For sure, hands okay. down. Okay. Not the nonsense That's... Navitimer. What is it? B01, the one that they reintroduced recently. Yes, the one without any chronograph function. Or... No history to the original Navitimer. Any any reason to exist? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I am not a Navitimer lunatic and i'm not a brightling fan tbh but um if i were to get an avatimer i would say this is probably the one to get is that fair to say oh for sure yeah no i would totally get this it's faithful to the original avatimer it's a it's a one one for one i feel like if you are into the avatimer story aesthetic whatever you want to call it this is probably the one you want to get you know there there's no there's no design cues that are out of place it's a one for one recreation of an actual original reference and you're getting something kind of pure to what what it what it actually stands for now for me it's not for me but for someone who it is for i could see why you know i can see the appeal and i can see if you if that appeal is there this is the one you want to get exactly no i i'm with you on that one yeah so finally a watch we both agree on it's a cool release i i gotta i gotta say it's a cool release i dig it so, on to you, and you're going to be talking about a watch brand that very few people have heard about, but it looks pretty right. sweet. So, carry on. So, we're going to, you know, I, do you like horror movies, Sanj? Mm, no, so not yes really. Yes or no? Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you, just, you just killed this for me. <laughs> I was going to say we're going to talk zombies because this is a zombie brand, and that brand is Seduna which is a historic Swiss brand um, that 
actually died during the Quartz Crisis and um, resurrected in 2006 from the grave. They, they dug up this, this corpse and resurrected it. Uh, someone took the name and they brought this historic brand back to life. Kind of like Tutima then, in a sense. Kind of like what? Tutima? Tutima, yeah. yeah. And actually, the next watch we'll probably review in the next episode, which, uh, hint, hint, there's a new watch uh, in our midst that uh, we're going to cover. So that's that's a little nugget for next episode. But yeah, so basically, Seduna was a historic Swiss brand. The reference they're specifically recreating um, this year is this watch that they released between 1971 to 73. Um, they made 400 of these. They were actually Lamania chronographs that they were issued to the Swedish Air Force flying the, the historic Saab Vigen, which is this awesome uh, Cold War era fighter that, this, that the Swedish uh, Air Force was flying at the time. If you follow us on Instagram, you've definitely seen a lot of pictures of Saabs and Vigens, so this should be no surprise to you. Um, and like most military-issued watches at that time, the piece of kit was mission specific. So it didn't belong to a pilot. It belonged to the air force. So after the mission or after a pilot served in a given unit, um, you know, the 400 chronographs were expected to be returned. And uh, of course, some pilots hid their chronographs and pretended they lost it or broke it or whatever. So there are about 50 to 65 of the originals that are still out in the wild that are still held in private private hands but this is the actual reference that Seduna was going to recreate um, so that's what they did they they put in a 7750 uh, they modified it to be a flyback chronograph and do you know what a flyback is yeah so correct me if I'm wrong yep. so when you start the chronograph and yep. you have completed say a lap or a, 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 a an, a procedure or something if you click on i don't know if it's the start stop button or the reset but if you click on one of those two buttons the chronometer hand will go back to the 12 o'clock position and start timing again yeah you you got you got it pretty much right so the seduna has a traditional chronograph um pusher reset setup right so it's got the pusher at two o'clock and the reset at four o'clock so to engage the flyback you're right. So you hit the pusher at two o'clock, you time whatever you're timing, and then without having to hit stop and then reset, so push the hit the pusher at two and then reset with the four, you basically just hit the reset at the four. And then mm. the the hand goes back to twelve as a flyback, you get it, and then it, it keeps going until you hit the two o'clock to stop the movement completely. Um, very useful if you're doing multiple timings back to back to back. So you're not losing that extra second where you hit stop, you hit reset, and you hit start again. Um, it's a very practical kind of complication. Um, it's not something that comes standard with the Valju 7750. So for them to do that modification was a mindful choice. And it's a great mindful choice. Um, I think it gives it a really unique um, functionality. And looking at the watch, you're looking at a traditional, you know, 70s era flight case uh, by Compax. It's very clean. It's only black and white. Um, it's a very simple, clean watch. Um, there's not really that much to say. Um, it's got a blue dial loom and a green loom on the bezel. 
um, the case was actually reverse engineered. So they took an original Seduna chronograph, Vigan Saab issued chronograph, and they recreated it from scratch, um, which I think is really cool. And I got to tell you, you know, there's not much to it. There's no pizzazz. You don't have, it's not a gold and, you know, uh, uh, two-tone chronograph or anything like that. It's a very clean black and white. If people didn't know any better, they wouldn't look twice at it. But I got to tell you, it has a real appeal to me. I don't know. What I do think, think that is the appeal, the simplicity in look. You know, it's a no-nonsense tool watch. And you and I are huge tool watch fans. That's right. Huge uh, tools. Yeah. Yeah, and I think they did a really good job. Um, I'm actually very impressed. It's extremely legible, and yeah. it straight stayed true to the original intent of the watch, which is right. awesome. Clean, visibility, useful. It's a bicampax chronograph, nothing else. It's, it's, it's perfect. You know, in my imagination, and this is just purely in my imagination, this is what, um, if the Speedmaster never went to the moon, and was just sort of relegated to history and Omega went under during the course crisis and someone brought back Omega. This is what a Speedmaster would look like. It's just clean. It's just black and white. There's no complication to it and it just works. Yeah. yeah. The one so. cool thing is the, is truly the flyback. I mean, normally you find this complication in, in the premium brands for a pretty penny. This one is what? 1700 bucks. Yeah. That's it. I mean, they're only, only making, I think they're only making 400. So ah. this is a very, well, look, it's, it's a small, it's a small company. They, they can't do a run of a thousand watches for you to make you happy and to give you the time to go hem and haw over it. Right? Listen, I want to be happy. I want to get this watch. <laughs> so actually the, the, the regular compacts watch without the flyback is cheaper. Oh, okay. It's 1480 Euro while the flyback is 1880 Euro. So you know, you have the option. You don't need if you don't care about the flyback, save a couple hundred bucks, save four hundred bucks, and get it. But as a watch fan like you and I, I lo- I mean, I'm I, I I if I'm gonna buy from Seduna directly, I'm buying the flyback. Yeah, exactly. You know, I have no use for it. I have a regular chronograph. I have multiple regular chronographs. I never use them, but if it's there, I want it. I mean, if you want to meal prep for the week, you can use the flyback. You know. True. True. Yeah, back to back to back. Back to back to back. See how fit quickly you can meal prep your yeah, that's right. um, <laughs> peanut butter jelly sandwiches. Disgusting. Um, peanut butter is banned in this household for uh, a months, all right? I, listen, that's as far as your cooking skills go. But That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it's a great watch. Yeah, I think it'll look fantastic. Like We talk about how it's a simple like, um, look. Just, just a bi-compact. What would really dress up with this watch, honestly, is if you just... Put some nice straps to it, like. Some... Well, it comes with leather, but to be honest, put it on a NATO and you're set. Right, but what I'm saying is, like, say if you you can, this is the kind of watch where you can dress it up with different colors of straps. You know, you know, one day you might want to do a light brown NATO or whatever, another day you want to do a military green, and it'll, it'll still go well. Yeah, it is. It's a strap monster. That's what they call it. Yeah, you know, I dig um, it. The only place they actually lived is the loom where. You know, you've got two different colors of loom. The green on the bezel and blue on the dial, which, I to be honest, know. not really sure why they did that. It's a little bit too funky for me, but I'm just an old curmudgeon, so never mind what I think about. Maybe the kids like it, but yeah, I love it. You know, Maybe love it. they just wanted to differentiate 
you know, you can easily tell that the green is from the bezel and the blue is from the, the yeah. Dial. I don't know. That's that's fair. That's fair. Um, but yeah, that's my pick. Very nice pick. This might be the one for the episode for me. Oh, watch but the episode. Okay, we what still have we still have a few more to cover. Yep. And the one that really got you talking is a watch from none other than Timex. Timex from Waterbury, Connecticut. Tell yes, me, right. What have they been up to? So they've done a reissue. So the, to me, this year has been about reissues. Like, um, and we'll get to a couple more. Newsflash, every year is about reissues. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is true. Anyways, so they reissued a watch that dates back to the 70s when Timex entered the quartz game. You know, 70s was a revolution in the watch industry where yep. the quartz movement came in and decimated half the Swiss world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's how technology moves on, you know. But anyways, the the Q-line, they called it the Q-line back in the day. And basically the Q-line represented the quartz, the quartz movement era for Timex or the quartz line. And the original Q Timex was first introduced in 1979. No, and, well, hang on. Oh, the ti- the Q di- the Q Diver, the reissue. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the first quartz that Timex adopted was 72. That is correct. But this okay. one that I'm going to talk about is introduced in the 79. reissue. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so to the listeners out there, it's uh, a very unique looking watch. Um, the case itself is very unique. It, it harks back to the designs of the 70s. And it's got a, a bezel that can be used as an additional, like a, as a GMT time zone. And it's a Pepsi bezel. And it's a blue dial with uh, sort of like a patina, faux patina style markings with a red second hand. But the yeah. unique thing about this watch to me is the the, the bracelet. Yeah. It's got this very unique woven style bracelet. It's like a steel woven bracelet. I, if you if you don't see it, it's very difficult to describe, but it just screams 1970s to me. Yeah. That screams 1970s. Oh, yeah. for sure. I think the whole aesthetic of the watch screams 1970s. Yeah, I mean, even I mean, there's no bakelite on the bezel, but that looks like a bakelite bezel from a distance. It does. Right? Yeah, right. it's got like that classic, you know, what you see in the Speedmaster back in the day, that kind of dome-shaped um, bezel. Um, the dome-shaped crystal, but I mean the actual bezel, you know. That oh, I'm sorry, turns. the crystal. Sorry, yes, yeah. yes. I'm talking about the, like that That I know is not bakelite, but it looks like bakelite. Correct, you know? yeah, yeah. It's awesome, yeah. Um, the bezel, unfortunately, is non-ratcheting and rotates in both directions but it has a little bit of a resistance they say um so i mean you got to consider two things well main thing is the price it's 179 bucks which is insane which is absolutely insane to, you know, to me that is crazy i think you know other watchmakers they would charge more than 179 bucks just for to get that bras- that bracelet yeah yeah and you're getting a a faithful one-for-one recreation of a historic watch, right? So you're getting not just a functional watch, you're getting a watch with real heritage, hearkening to a real reference that is historic for the brand, okay? It stayed in-house. Yeah. And you're getting 
all this for less than 200 bucks, which blows me away. Like just, just the tooling to do the bracelet and, you know, that it by itself would dictate a higher price, if you ask me. Yeah, and I think the bracelet is key. Yeah, I don't know how they pulled it off. I have no idea how they pulled it off. I yeah. mean, even if you look at the case back, they're using that that um, the button compartment. Basically, you could you could use a screwdriver or a little coin and turn the compartment. It pops that door out. There's like a little door, and then you'll have a little button battery that you can pop in and pop out when you need to change the battery. So you can change the battery yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. It's, I'm I'm amazed by this. I I think I think issuing this watch for this price is a game changer for this brand. Okay, and look, you know, yes, it's a quartz. No one is gonna you know go nuts about a quartz. Yes, it's a Timex. Nobody gets excited over Timex. But look, you're getting hey, we are getting brand. excited for a Timex here. We're, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, you're getting a historic brand, a a, a a solid 1970s era watch back in action. Okay, one for one. Imagine that. It, it's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah, and the dimensions are actually very reasonable. It's 38 millimeters, the case yeah. size. Yeah. So it's very, uh, let's say, it's it's nothing large or nothing small. It's just a, a good size for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm inundated with watches right now. I'm not going to buy a watch, but I got to tell you, you know, this is a very tempting offer. <laughs> It's, Tommy, it's a beautiful you, watch. You you go on eBay basically every hour to scout for watches. It's true, but I'm I'm telling you, man, this 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 is a real home run from Timex. I think so too. I hope they and, sell out. You know, like they they just yeah. This will I, do well for the brand. I think there will be some enthusiasts like you and me um, that will be like, "Wow, this is very impressive." I want to. It's very smart because you and I are talking about Timex for probably the first time on this show. Right, we've um, never mentioned. Yeah, we did. Have we mentioned the, when? the Marlin. Oh, maybe you're right. Yeah, and look, the other time we mentioned Timex this whole time over a year and a half, let's say, is that when they did a historic reissue that, that is was true. faithful to their original catalog, that got people like you and me talking. And you know what? They sold out the Merlin in no time. And I don't know if the Timex Q is limited, but um, if it was, it'd probably be sold out. Um, but if not. Uh, oh, here we go. As per Worn and Wound, the first run is already sold out, and Timex expects to have more available in September. So on, awesome. until September, this is sold out, which I think is great for the industry. It's great for the company, and I hope they continue because I think offering a true vintage reissue with some heritage at a price that most people can actually get a piece of the action, I think is awesome. I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, I agree. That is. I this is a very appealing watch. Um, yeah, it can't go wrong. Um, it, it, it's a home run. It's a home run for me. Yeah, for sure. The interesting bit is the movement itself. It's not exactly a Timex movement. It's based off a of Seiko Quartz PC33 movement. Yeah, yeah. Well, which probably keeps the price down, keeps it simple. Yeah, exactly. I have looks, nothing, nothing um, against that. Seiko, Seiko Quartz is, you know, they're, they're on the industry. They're the, yeah, they're the standard. They've been in it for a long time. They're the ones who decimated half the industry. Yeah, that, that's fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we've mentioned the quartz crisis a couple of times. So, you know, we got to mention another quartz near victim. And that would be Omega. And this is the big one. This is the big one. So I think, you know, I, we, I predicted this a couple episodes back. Look, it's 2019. It's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. 
there's got to be a special edition Apollo 11 speed. You know what? Omega should just hire you as their chief marketing officer. Listen, if Omega branding officer, if Omega did not keep track of the year, they need to fire themselves. Right. (laughs) You know, this is to the watch fans out there. This is also obvious that Seiko was good. I mean, Omega was good or something. Very obvious. So, what we have now is the Steel Omega Speedmaster Apollo 11 50th anniversary. Um, so we've already seen an Apollo 11 Speedmaster this year. That was the gold Speedmaster. That was the one that's harkening back to um, the uh, the historic astronauts appreciation dinner in Houston months after the mission was successfully completed. Um, but you know that's the BA 145.022 model. Um, the 18 karat gold. Um, but, th- you know, I think we always knew that that was not going to be the one Speedmaster for the year. You know, obviously gold is not for everybody. And Apollo 11's mission is probably the most important scientific mission of the past century. So they're going to honor it more than one Speedmaster, safe to say. Um, so, yeah, this is the Apollo 150th anniversary steel. Uh, they're producing 6,969 pieces, 6969, obviously. Um, same case dimensions as a Speedy Pro. Um, but look, there's, it's not a professional watch, okay? This is not a moon watch. Um, it's been issued with Sapphire instead of Hesalite. So it's not going to be a one-for-one for, one for the moon watch. Um, it does not have the 1863 uh, movement. It has the 3861 movement which is coaxial, um, 15,000 Gauss, anti-magnetic. Um, so it's an updated movement. It's not exactly the Speedy Pro wind-up movement that uh, we're used to. It's a manual, but still quite a bit different. Um, but, you know, they have a couple cool touches. And I think my favorite touch, and we mentioned the Timex Q bracelet, how it blew me away. This watch, this Speedmaster has an awesome vintage bracelet too. What do you think about that? The flat links, the brush center, and the cool thing is it's got that old school Omega logo at the clasp, like the original like 60s Speedmasters had. Did you notice that? That is true. Yeah. So I, I got to tell you, I, the watch looks awesome, but the, the bracelets were what, it, what gets to me. Because those flat, like, that's the one thing about my Speedy Pro. I'm wearing it right now, Speedy Tuesday, obviously. Um, but, you know, the links are a little bit thick. They're not, they don't have that, that historic, light, uh, thin feel. And the only reason I'm even familiar with that is because I had a Speedy Reduced, an older Speedy Reduced that had those older, old school links. Mm-hmm. Um, those were hollow, thin links. And, you know, yes, they were a little clinky, but they were actually really comfortable and they looked really cool. Um, and, this, this model brings those links back. Um, brushed in the middle, polished on the sides of, of the bracelet. Awesome. And it's got that just, you know, it doesn't have the traditional two-hand unlock for the, for the bracelet. It has just the Omega uh, logo on the clasp. Um, it's very cool. You know? And, I mean, that's not even the end of it. So there's moonshine gold that's applied to the indices, the bezel, uh, the applied logo, the hands. Um, the subtitles in the outer ring are in black, and this, sorry, the the outer ring is in black, and the subtitles are in gray. Uh, so you got a little bit of um, of a contrast there. And this is actually the interesting thing is, you know, Apollo Eleven is all about Neil Armstrong. He's the first on the moon. He's the commander. Fine, but this watch actually honors Buzz Aldrin. 
and it does it twice. So the obvious one is the moon watch with him mooning everybody, um, which is a relief of him climbing down from the lamp uh, uh, from the lamb at nine o'clock. Um, so on the Instagram, I'll, I'll post a picture, but there's a comparison of the actual photograph of him climbing out of the lamb, um, but first, and they actually have a relief of that at nine o'clock, which is pretty cool. It's in, it's in, it's in gold. Um, is it a little bit on the nose? Yeah, I would think a little bit, but you know, still pretty, pretty, really cool. Pretty damn cool. And, um, the other, uh, thing hearkening to him is if you look at the case back, it actually has his blueprint. Um, on the back of the watch, uh, his famous you know picture of his boot on the moon, and if you look close enough, you actually see the little plus marks um, from the Hasselblad cameras that actually captured that, um, really recreating that historic photograph of his blueprint. So, um, yeah, I mean, all in all, I think it's you know, look, this watch is going to sell out. It's, it's it's probably sold out. It's probably already sold out. Um, it's selling for eighty nine hundred Swiss francs, which. It's a pretty penny. You know, you're looking past $10,000. Um, but um, look, it's Apollo 11. It's a 50th anniversary. It's steel. It's it's checking every box. You know, I look, you know, th- there was the gold Speedmaster, which was, you know, uber expensive. I, I'm not sure what the price was. I'm assuming it was over 20 grand. Sam, I don't know if you remember. Ooh, I can't. I'll have to dig it up again. Right? But so was... you've got the very, very high end. Then you've got the high end watch right now, which is still over 10 grand U.S., um, you know, with the moonshine, moonshine gold, I really wish, and this may, this wish may not come true because it could be overkill, but that they did a speed uh, speedmaster professional. That was just a speedmaster professional with just a marking saying 50th anniversary, Apollo 11. Okay, you know, maybe I was an extra grand thinking the same thing with yeah. the three, two, one movement faithful to almost near faithful to what they wore on the moon. Right. And you know what? That's what really makes me think there's another one coming. And maybe it's coming in July when the moon landing actually happens. But they they made a big deal about the three two one movement coming back and they haven't used it yet. It's gonna come they for have, sure. Right. But when were you gonna use it? You're gonna have to use it for a speedmaster and you're gonna have to use it for Apollo eleven. And Apollo eleven is this year. So it's gotta come relatively quickly, right? So I'm yeah. assuming there's one coming this summer. Um that's a prediction that actually is a prediction that not everyone would say is obvious. So take it to the bank. Maybe next episode we can say I was right. But yeah, they haven't used a 3 2 one movement yet. And I think that's really telling. I think you're right. So a few things. Um, you first mentioned about the bracelet. To me, it looks like a vintage representation of what the future, like a futuristic bracelet would look like. You know, like... If I was in the 60s or 70s and I wanted to style what a futuristic bracelet would look like, I would use this. Like, I would style it like in this manner that they've shown it. It's like a vintage slash futuristic feel. Yeah, I, I think so. But, you you know, that's the whole Speedmaster ethos, right? You, you're looking yeah. at a 50 year watch and you're still looking at the Space Age. Kind of weird, right? Yeah. I'm not um, a big fan of the, um, the Buzz Aldrin walking down the lunar module. You're not, heathen. Why? Ah, it's just that it just doesn't make it a a, a useful it, practical watch. It's a it's a bit on the nose. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit on the nose. But that being said, the fact that a Buzz Aldrin is mooning us and it's a moon watch, there's a little bit of humor in that too. There's a little bit of humor in that. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, there's actually a great article by Fratello of all the Apollo Eleven 
Speedmaster. So every five years, they're putting out a new Apollo 11 Speedmaster okay, right. for every anniversary. And, you know, for me, I think having the Apollo 11 Mission Patch logo is an awesome thing. I think that's, oh, yeah. that's the one I would get, you know, yeah. because I think that's just an awesome visual. And that kind of tells you everything you need to say without an actual picture of Buzz Aldrin coming down the ladder. You know? right. So I agree. It's a little bit on the nose, but still, I, I think I think it's really cool. I think that it's exciting. I it think is exciting. That, and you, know, I, you, you missed that one feature, unique feature that's kind of hidden. In the watch, if you oh, look at the boy. eleven o'clock, oh, and did you notice see, that? I I did notice that, but I forgot to mention it. So I'm glad you mentioned it. What happens at eleven o'clock? There is a marking that says eleven on it. That's right. Um, I I, I think it's a good watch. It's a very unique watch. Uh, very well packaged as well. It comes with a nice cool case. And um, from a movement perspective, I'm actually not that uh, like critical of it. Let's just say. You know, they're trying something different. Whatever. That's fine. I'm not critical of it at all. I'm just saying it's not a professional. That's all I said. That, that's fine. It's a coaxial movement. It's it's an improvement from the professional. Yeah. It's got a, a additional anti-magnetism. It's got 15,000 gauss. It's all good. But, you know, all I'm saying is it's not the professional. I know. And that's, that's the thing. You know, and for me, yeah. Realistically, what I said earlier, if they were going to produce a straight you know, non $10,000 Speedmaster professional for Apollo 11. If they use a three, two, one movement, they'll probably charge the same price for it because yeah. the three, two, one movements hand, you know, hand assembled in Switzerland, blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good choice. Uh, it's, it's a very nice looking, very unique watch. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of gold, but you know, for what it is, I get it. I think it's pretty cool. You've been talking about two tone goals lately. Two tone is different. I, yeah, I guess this counts as two tone. All it right. is two tone. It is two tone. That's two tone. All right, Sanch, let's shift dials again. Yeah, okay. let's let's end the uh, the whole Omega blabber and go on to another Swatch brand. Yeah, and it's again, it's another sort of reissue of a faithful. So the one I'm going to be talking about is the Hamilton khaki field, and this one specific one is one with the white dial. White dial, okay. And gotcha. the one with the white dial is very exclusive because it's only sold through Topper Jewelers. Another Topper exclusive. So we've covered their Seiko exclusive before. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Their uh, Seiko Ninja, Topper Ninja. So yes. yeah, this is the second one we're covering. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually worked with Hamilton to um, in the design and aesthetic development of the watch to include a white dial to their so do you want to compare the white dial to the other ones in the lineup so what hamilton actually did was they actually updated the hamilton khaki field mechanical watches yeah and there's a link on hidinki which covers the updated watches including the white one yeah um so there is like a brushed gray i don't know if that's even pvd but i don't think it is um, with the black dial, and then there's a regular, like, uh, brushed stainless steel with the black dial, and then there's the, like, I wouldn't say it's brushed, it's more of a matte, very, very matte finish. It's like as if it's being bead blasted, per se. Okay. Um, and then there's one with the white dial, which I'll be talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as we know, this watch is military-inspired, um, and then, you know, it dates back to when the Army Ordnance Department 
sent notice to watchmakers to design a robust hackable movement watch with the tough crystals, sweeping center seconds, and a one-piece strap. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 60s, they actually updated it to, and I've actually got it down here, The, I guess the specification numbers, um, GG-W-113. And also, very famous spec, yeah. It's it's a Vietnam era spec. Exactly. And the mil-w-3818b. So the khaki fuel mechanical shares its design language based on these set of military uh, specifications. Yeah. And uh the one cool thing is that it's it's pretty it's not a large watch at all. I mean, Hamilton is not known for making large khaki watches. Yeah, um, it's got a 30- which are too big, which are too big, and just defeat the purpose, in my opinion. Exactly, um, it, it's in thirty-eight millimeter case. Um, yeah. The cool thing is, like the Timex, it's got like this aged loom or maybe faux patina added to the markings, which gives it a more vintage look. Mm-hmm. Um, for all watches, not just the white topper inspired one, um, the movement has been upgraded to an eighty power, eighty hour power reserve. Yeah. Um, and it comes in either a brown NATO leather strap or a military green NATO. Or you can get a, a combo for both of them for a little bit more. Nice. So what do you think about this watch? You've actually been a fan of the Hamilton Feel Khaki. khaki which, one would you, which one would you go for the topper or would you go for the other one of the other two? You know what, though? The topper does look very unique. It's not exactly military spec because of the white dial, but I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I actually do dig the white one. You, so you go for the topper one? Yeah, I'll go for the topper so the, one. So the, the, the topper one's actually available starting this past month, and the other two are available in August. So ironically, that's already for sale. But um, I think for me, I would go for the, the sandblasted metallic one with the black dial yeah not the pvd one this the just the straight steel gotcha um, i kind of dig that one that's the classic you know world war ii slash vietnam war era look mm-hmm. um but i didn't realize that it was 38 millimeters because i think that sizing is really attractive because anything bigger for us like a simple three-handed watch and it seems like it's kind of overkill, you know. Like, why do you need a huge watch that just does, just tells you the time? No, I mean, unless it's a Flieger to... watch that dates back to like um, the original, you know. Yeah, that, that's bloody silly. Let, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, if you want to do it faithful to the reissue, you know, you. That's yeah, what... I hear you. I, I yeah, I mean, those Fliegers are like fifty millimeters, bro. Okay, I'm yeah, gonna... that, that's a bit them. much. It's it's nuts. It's yeah. like this. Uh, it's like the Samsung Galaxy Note on your wrist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have a Hamilton, right? Which one do you have? I have the khaki. Uh, what was it? I don't forgot the exact name. It's a Hamilton khaki GMT. Oh, it's a GMT. It's a GMT. Uh, Mind you, the it, the GMT a... works well. It's just that it's hard to read it. The legibility on the third hand is pretty bad. Really? See, Hamilton makes a lot of weird design choices. Like some of their classic stuff from their heritage line is really cool, and that's what I find really attractive. But some of their new stuff, it's like hit or miss with me. It is. I agree with you on that. <laughs> like the Jazzmaster is an 
you know, it's a hit or miss. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this is a very interesting. And what's the price for this sandwich, by the way? So it, it varies. Um, you can get with the brown NATO for five hundred twenty-five bucks. Yeah. Uh, the the green NATO is four hundred twenty-five. Or if you want both of them, you can get them in a box set for six twenty-five. Okay. Which that, is, that, in my opinion, a little bit steep. But you know what? If it's a limited edition, sure, why not? Well, are all three limited editions, or just the topper? The topper is going to be the limited one. Gotcha. The others will be part of the regular lineup. Yeah, I believe so. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, you know, look, you know, it, my advice would be wait for it to come out, wait for someone to buy it, and then wait for someone to sell it, and then pick it up. Pick it up for you know, I don't know, three hundred bucks, two fifty. That's a good price. A good price for a three hundred watch. Yeah, that I agree. That that's yeah. a solid. You can't price. go wrong with that. And look, this, it's not like it's got a chronograph. Uh, module or anything you need to worry about getting it second hand this is just a simple three-hander so it should be pretty straightforward yep so i believe these are the set of watches that we actually have a similar appreciation for which is a first usually we've been ripping on each other on our choices well look i think we both appreciate issued watches watches that were issued to military you know space forces that sort of thing and we like simple tool watches so there's a lot of overlap with that you know so i'm not that surprised i am still (laughs) (laughs) all right well i think that wraps up watch talk this time uh should we go on to streaming golden closing notes sounds good let's do it all right so i think on uh as far as streaming gold uh this week is is uh top of the list for me is running from cops sanj have you ever seen the show cops yes okay well, have you ever wondered why anyone would agree to be on Cops? No idea. I just remembered the intro song. All right, so quite useless. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Running from Cops is actually a podcast uh, free to free to listen to, so I would recommend everyone to listen to it. But basically, it's a story of how Cops came on TV and how a typical episode of Cops is put together. And it's actually quite fascinating because – for a show like that, you would think legally you would need to re- sign a release or sign a waiver saying, yes, it's it's okay to show my face. It's okay to, you know, show me on TV. And the question is, why would anyone sign that release and be on TV, you know, probably on the worst day of their lives? And basically the show delves into how an episode of Cops is put together, why police departments agree to basically take the, the Fox crew along with them to, to shoot cops and what happens to people that have been on cops? Um, I think I think it's a really interesting show, but um, it's really kind of interesting because I remember as a kid watching cops. I, I loved cops growing up, but you know it's it's hard to look at the show now as an adult and kind of not see sort of a single group of people uh, being not just made an example of, but also sort of the jokes kind of at their expense. And um, it's an excellent show. So uh, I mean, running from cops. So highly recommend it. Um, Free for streaming. They actually just finished last week. So you can kind of binge it. You were always rooting for the suspects growing up when you were watching. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's just interesting how a show like that's put together and like what the underlying message is, you know, Um, it's not, it's not just about police. It's not just about the war on drugs, but like 
you know, how do they decide what segments to, to air and like, you know, what kind of message does it show to someone? Look, you know, when you're watching cops, you're not watching the policeman spend an hour directing traffic, right? You're watching an arrest after an arrest after an arrest. So like, what kind of, what kind of message does that convey to the person who's not a policeman, you know, who doesn't live in that state, state or city? Like wh- what do they get out of it? Right. Um, I think it's really interesting. Um, highly recommend it. It's pretty well researched and, there are interesting interviews with both, you know, lawyers. There are interesting interviews with policemen. There are interviews with the people who actually produced cops and people who were on cops. So mm-hmm. um, it's sort of like a 360 view into the show. And the show really speaks a lot of volumes on like society and like, you know, how it approaches questions like drugs. Uh, right. So it's interesting. I'd highly recommend it. You say that it's the suspects' worst day of their lives. I say is there's no such thing as bad publicity so (laughs) oh i think some of these guys would disagree with you (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true yeah um that's cool i got a classic film that's on amazon prime yeah it is ronin starring uh robert de niro and uh, jean reno and it's directed by john frankenheimer Came out in about 97, 98, and it's about basically a heist to get this particular case. Uh, I don't want to ruin it for everyone but who have not seen it yet, but this case contains something. Anyways, long story short, this movie, although not a box office success like Avengers Endgame, developed a I mean, cult- I think it's safe to say it was barely a box office blip. I mean, I talked to people who were alive and, you know, sort of sentient at that time, and they've never heard of Ronan. Oh, boy. Right? But it developed a cult following because there are several car chase scenes, and they were amazingly well choreographed, directed, and captured on camera because it was not like, say, you know, Fast and the Furious where there's visual effects or, you know tanks coming into play and you know avoiding cartoons yeah yeah, cartoons jumping through skyscrapers in the car or whatever this was true bare to the bones like classic car chase through the city you know um and you know just hitting each other and it it captures a lot of the the sounds of the cars the 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 essence of what a, a a car chase should be yeah, so I, I mean, the most of the movie is shot in the south of France. So a lot of the car chases are on like vertically tight streets in Nice and like places like that. And you have cars that are like not. So first of all, you're right. There's no, as far as I know, there's not much CGI used, if and if any at all. I think it's mostly stunt drivers and and uh, practical effects. So right by itself, this is an old, you know, quote old-fashioned movie. But you kind of get a different feel from watching Fast and the Furious, for example. Like, you know you're watching something that's real, governed by the laws of physics. And, um, yeah, the car, car chase scenes are awesome. Right. The gunfights are awesome. Again, very similar to, I, you know, I would say the gunfights are similar to the feeling you get from watching Heat by Michael Mann. Like, you, you, you feel every yes, bullet. Yes. You see the impacts. You see, you know, there, there's a visceral feeling to the movie. And the plot's great. It's a classic spy plot. You don't yeah. really know who to trust. Um, Sean Bean is in it, who you know you know from Game of Thrones. He was in Gold, uh, GoldenEye as 006. Yeah, he was like um, Boromir or one of the characters from Lords of the Rings as well. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's got a really awesome cast, a lot of hidden gems, and Jean Renault and Robert De Niro are an awesome pair as partners. Um, yeah. It's it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. It's routinely on the list of great, the greatest like uh, car chase, car related films. Exactly, and one of the cars that really I remember watching this, you know, shortly after it came out was the Audi S8, the uh, the D2 to the car fans out there, the D2 version of it. It's uh, it, it you know if you look at the car, it's very much much like a Q car, like. You can't. You think it's a regular sedan, but it's basically hot rodded inside. Um, yeah, and it's a fast car. I mean, not fast, not fast, quick in today's standards, but back then it was a pre- really quick car. Um, yeah, I mean, the the cool thing about the car chases is that they're not going in a straight line, right? Like no. it's a lot about being a good driver and like taking corners and going to tight spaces. So it's about handling as much as speed and. It's interesting, like the the guy who plays the, the getaway driver in the movie, Larry, requests an Audi S8, you know, that's what he wants. Like, he's like, any car you want, you let us know, I want the Audi S8. So it's yeah. interesting. It's, it's a nice little cameo by that car. Yeah, and I think in the movie, Jean Reno is this, like, the fixer. Like, the, he's the go-to guy for equipment. And, like, he's like, yeah, I can get you anything. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, very very raw, authentic movie, classic. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, moving on to closing notes, Sanch. Um, I've got one, and you've got one. Um, so one thing that actually I noticed in the news um, is actually happened in April. Uh, Japan received its first shipment of um, F-35A uh, Lightning II stealth fighters. And I think they only got five or six and they were on a routine training flight right after they, they came to Japan, uh, interestingly. And one of the fighters completely disappeared out of radar and crashed uh, somewhere in the ocean and without a trace. There was no mayday signal. They didn't know what happened to the pilot. Um, but then suddenly both the United States and Japan raced to that ocean to try to get the fuselage. Um, basically, the advanced avionics, the advanced radar, and of course, that super secret skin, the stealth skin on the F-35, um, they were afraid that the Chinese or the Russians would get their hands on it. Um, so they've, they've been spending the last couple of weeks hunting for the F-35 fuselage, with, which is really interesting. Um, and actually, it reminded me of a video that I watched. Um, it's called Snatch a Saber. Um, it's in YouTube. It's actually by a, a great channel on YouTube, um, which I would highly recommend you follow. Uh, Mark Felton Productions. He does a lot of history stuff. Um, and he recounted this episode from 1951 where uh, the the Soviets uh, were, were fighting. The American fighter pilots were flying the F-86 in Korea with their MiG-15. And they could not understand all the technicals of what the F-86 had to offer. So they had to come up with a plan to capture an F-86. And they basically came up, hatched a plan to ambush an F-86. They damaged one. And basically that F-86 crashed in enemy territory in North Korea. The pilot realized he was going down and tried to fly the F-86 back, um, but didn't make it. Um, He crashed, he ejected and was rescued. And then there was a scramble on the American side to basically send every fighter and bomber in the air to go bomb the remnants of the F-86 before the Soviets could get their hands on it. Um, wow. Yeah, okay. it, it was a real race because they knew exactly where it crashed. 
and the Russians sent every fighter jet they could to protect that uh, crash site uh, while their technicians took apart the F-86. And basically what they did was they took apart the F-86, put it on flatbed trucks, and immediately shipped it to the Soviet Union um, so their scientists could study it. So it's an, it's an interesting episode in the Korean War, but it's also interesting that 50, 60 years later, basically the, the same dynamic is in play. Like, you know, the fear is that the Russians and the Chinese will get their hands on the F-35. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of interesting how history repeats itself and how everyone's really up to the same old tricks over and over again. Oh, yeah. And it'll continue on forever and ever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know the latest. Have they found it yet or are they still looking? I think as of a week ago, they've given up searching for the fuselage. That's what oh, the United okay. States said. So I don't – it looks like they never found it. I don't know if that's a cover story. Um, but, yeah. That's where we stand. Who's to say? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the stealth technology and the the advanced avionics. It's, um, but I mean, with the F thirty five, I think a lot of it is also stuff that the, um, the Soviets or whoever extracts it. I mean, not the Soviets, the Russians. Let me rephrase that. I'm sorry, the Russians. Um, you know, whoever extracts this, um, the remnants. Can't can't figure out because a lot of it on this plane is software based. Yeah, I mean, I think they're really worried about the skin, the metallurgy on the stealth skin. I think that's something they're really worried about. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. I'll be really curious how you can reverse engineer, I guess, the meta- the material properties of the stealth skin. I mean, I'm I'm not saying it cannot be done. I mean, I'm not not a professional in that sense, but I'm just more curious in the sense like, how would they do it? You know, that's just yeah. unique coatings, unique chemicals. Yeah, yeah. No, so. I hear you. I'm, I'm sure they'll figure something out if they get their hands on it. Yep. All right. So what's what's your closing notes here? So in the racing world, there was a big loss in the racing community. Uh, yeah. On May 20th, um, Niki Lara succumbed to his, um, to his uh, injuries. Um, I think he had, uh, I forgot what operation he had, but he had an operation... They thought it went well, but it started to go worse, and uh, he passed away um, at the age of 70. And to those who don't know who Niki Lada was, he was a three-time Formula One world champion who then became an entrepreneur and a commercial aviation pilot. And, you know, throughout his life, he was still involved in the racing world, even though as he's not a racing driver. He was, for example, the team manager for the Jaguar F1 team, and he also, in his most recent role, was the non-executive chairman of the uh, unbeatable Mercedes AMG Formula One team. Yeah. Uh, so he Lewis Hamilton's team, right? He, exactly. He was one of the key personnel that convinced Lewis Hamilton to join Mercedes in 2013. Yeah. So I mean, he was really close with Lewis Hamilton, um, and yeah, uh, he was an incredible human being. I mean, if you were to hear about him, and which you or see him, which you can through the movie Rush, um, he almost died in the 1976 uh, Nurburgring Grand Prix, um, where something happened in his Ferrari 312. He spun, hit the uh, crashed, and caught fire, and the he had severe burns throughout his body. And he, he, he also was, inhaled a lot of toxic fumes, right? Exactly. The, the fiberglass that burned during the crash that really injured him more than the actual fire. 
exactly the toxic fumes that he inhaled they had to vacuum it out i mean this guy was given his last rites when he was admitted to the hospital after the crash you know yeah but uh to me this was the greatest comeback in sport in general i mean he this came guy back was... to racing within 40 days of that accident right exactly it he, was he missed unheard. two races yeah he missed two races came back for the italian grand prix basically you know the home of ferrari with the team he was racing for at the time and came forth i mean this guy was removing bloodied bandages from his you know his his body at the end of the race like he was yeah no i i heard that he took his helmet off and then he had a balaclava a cloth balaclava over his burnt face and that was soaked in blood exactly i mean to come from near death to have your lungs vacuumed and then recover to you know still be in championship contention it's amazing it's just it's incredible Amazing. He's a hero. Um, you know, that, that's someone who's got mind over matter. That's something yeah, that that's, he was so committed to racing. That's a hero, hero, uh, hero story. And he was also an executive with Lada Air. Right? Yeah. Airline. So he's, yeah. so when he retired, I believe he first, his first retirement was in 1979, I think. Okay. Um, he said he, he just had enough. Um, he, started his own airline he was you know into aviation at the time started his airline and he started a lot of air and this is a very unique thing about lada he was an he was a no-nonsense guy you know he would tell you as it is he would not he would not put any bs into what he would say yeah um and he would be very honest with you um for example when he joined ferrari in 1973 Oh, no, 1974, I think. 73, 74. He told the team that the car was utter crap the first time he drove the car. He told Enzo Ferrari's son that his um, the car was crap. And, you know, he, he, he did not, you know, fear Enzo Ferrari himself. Yeah. But the other thing he did that many people may or may not know about is the Lauder Air his personal involvement in the Lada Air crash that happened in 91. Um, it was a Boeing 767, which crashed in Bangkok and took the lives of 223 people. And it really, you know, hit Lada, Nikki Lada to the core, where he was personally involved in the crash. He went to the site. He was, took an active role in determining what caused the problem. Yeah. And long story short, the investigation took eight months. And it was due to a faulty design of the O-ring, which deployed the thrust reverser in midair, which was, you know, incredibly scary to deploy reverse thrust in midair. Yeah. So the one thing he did was he convinced Boeing to release the statement. And then Boeing said it'll take, you know, the lawyer language would take like three months, you know, whole corporate, you know, we got to protect ourselves nonsense. Um, but he said, you know what, he's going to go on the plane and he's going to deploy the thrust reversers himself. Mind you, Nikki Lauda could fly his entire fleet of aircraft at the time. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and he's going to do it and see if he can recover from the situation. And once he said that the very next day, Boeing issued out a statement. Yeah. So that's how, like, that's how you got to deal with the, uh, you know, the the pencil pushers 
You gotta put them exactly. on the you gotta put them on the uh, put them on the spot sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, you know? yeah. Nicky Lauda is, is a hero. He's uh, the interesting thing was uh, Ron Dennis brought him back out of retirement, right? Yes. Yeah. You know. And Ron Dennis of uh, of course our other hero Ayrton Senna fame. Exactly. So I mean, Ron Dennis was the principal or you know, head of the McLaren racing team back in the eighties. He brought he took over. On the McLaren racing team in the 80s and turned them into a real powerhouse. And he convinced Nicky Lada to come back and uh, paid Nicky Lada a fortune to race again. I think it was $3 million. I don't know the exact figure. I'm pretty but sure it was $3 million. Yeah. Yeah, in 1980 dollars, which is ridiculous. Right. Um, but the he won the championship in 84 and he was racing against Alain Prost. Yeah, who was at the time up and coming, hot shot, and he beat Elaine Prost. It was the closest championship battle in the history of Formula One because he beat Elaine Prost by half a point. Wow, that's nuts! Um, and he was considered to be washed out and finished by them initially, yes. But then he joined back in '83, and he won on his third race back. Wow. And then, um, so he lost basically none of his skill, really. That's um, awesome. And mind you, Prost is no slow coach here. He is an incredible racer. Yeah. Uh, the professor- four-time world champion, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he will be missed. You know, he's a legend that's gone off to the history books. Yep. And, you know, he will be racing with James Hunt up in the clouds. That's right. That's right. But you can see that in the... Movie Rush, which is directed by Ron Howard. Excellent movie. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Um, And the actor who portrayed Nicky Lara, I forgot his name right now. Daniel Brühl. That's his name. Yes. Um, Even Nicky Lara said that Daniel Brühl's portrayal of Nicky Lara was spot on. There you go. There you go. And James Hunt is is played by the guy that plays Thor, right? In the Avengers? Yes. Chris Chris Hemsworth. That's right. Yeah, it's a great movie. Definitely worth uh, checking out. Yes. Well, I think, Sanj, I think that's all we got for today. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, good coverage on watches that we actually liked. For together. a change. For a change. Well, for I think uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, listening to this episode. Um, get, you know, Follow us wherever you did listen to this episode. So however you're listening, subscribe, please. And uh, also follow us on Instagram at The Land Jam Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at The Land Jam Pod. All right, so until next time, uh, take care, and we will catch up. Thank you very much to those listening to us, and yeah, take care until the next episode.